extensive private networks of clinics, offering IVF, egg and sperm donation, surrogacy, egg freezing services and so on, across what would be called tier two and three cities across India. So not the, 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 the most, the largest cities, but also in the smaller towns across the country. Now, we would argue that that expansion has actually resulted in what I would call unwelcome stratification of services as providers weaken the quality of their services that they're offering to make them affordable to a less knowledgeable clients of lower socioeconomic status. So that um, vast scale of expansion, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, has resulted in a sort of proliferation of non-standard unethical practices in many cases um, that remain undetected largely due to the absence of any structured assisted reproductive technology legislation, uh, and also the fact that there's really very little active surveillance of what's going on with assisted reproduction across the country. So whilst in theory there's regulation, in practice we've seen with the surrogacy regulation bill and the ART bills that have failed to pass in Parliament, that the market has been really allowed to thrive under rather chaotic and uncertain conditions. So it's been suggested that one of the ways in which we could prevent that situation continuing is to create in India a kind of um, 
regulatory oversight framework by using something like um, the uh, what, what we would call something like the UK's Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. If we had a similar thing like to that in India, that would be useful. But we don't, so it's very difficult to ascertain the number of clinics, for instance, or what they're actually doing there. So the Indian Council of Medical Research, for instance, attempted to develop a comprehensive database in 2013, but that was suspended in 2014, so they didn't do it for very long. There are now said to be over 20,000 ART clinics across India, but the Times of India 2017 report suggested that only 390 of them were on the ICMR's registered database, so you can see it's a shadow economy. So we want to think about the political economy of ART in India and also how ART providers in India are expanding their networks of provision into the global south, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. So I would argue that new globally extensive, what I call reproductive empires, are being built both within and from India to serve the desire for biologically related children amongst the world's most impoverished communities. So let's sort of start to think about what some of the drivers are of, of that new economy. And I would suggest to you that they're the neoliberalism of health service provision in India, that's one, the privatisation and corporatisation of care, gendered competitiveness amongst the providers, which I'll talk a little bit about, surprisingly enough, uh, and, you know, of course, the desire, potent cultural preferences for biologically related uh, children. So what I'm going to do is, in this talk today is pay particular attention to what, what we might think of as the historicity of recent colonial relations within the ART sector in India. And I want to put forward a theory that it's these that have been learnt at the knees of various providers from the West and then visited upon other, you know, the Indians are now visiting upon those upon other people from other um, peripheral neighbouring economies uh, in a reproductive sort of elaboration of what Marini refers to as sub-imperial power. So I'm going to sort of try and explain this as much as I can. So if you, if you want to think about the emergence of assisted reproduction in a country like India, you really have to contextualise that historically. So many people wouldn't understand why do you need assisted reproduction in a country like India? There are so many children, why, why do you need to have any more children? Why does anybody want any more children? But ironically, it's actually a product of a kind of combination of, of, a, of you know, um, developments which have led to this, and which I'm going to talk about a little bit now. So, not long after India became independent, it, it, it implemented a sort of two-child norm and began to sort of aggressively promote various contraceptive measures amongst women, including things like subdermal implants and injectables. And the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act was introduced, we would argue, not to give women greater reproductive choice but to allow them to legally abort their unwanted pregnancies and limit population growth. So it's a kind of antinatalist agenda in India, trying to prevent women from reproducing more. So abortion thus became a kind of state-sanctioned family planning mechanism in India, and we saw select, sex-selective abortions of female embryos increasing at that time. 
And in fact, hoardings went up in public places at that time, exhorting people to think wisely and spend 500 rupees in advance to avoid paying a 500,000 rupee dowry later down the track. So in other words, encouraging you to abort your female children to prevent you having to expend a lot of money on their dowry some, sometime in the future. And the state also began to actively promote tubal ligation as another preferred method for population control. And that had absolutely devastating impacts. So many women resisted sterilisation as they were aware of the very high mortality rates amongst their children. So once they become sterilised, they're not going to be able to reproduce any further. But, and this is the interesting point where that, that process meets ART, the state actually worked to counter their fears about being sterilised by suggesting to them that technological interventions like assisted reproduction could remedy their infertility should such an eventuality arise. So in other words, if you had a tubal ligation and then your three children died, don't worry because ART will fix that for you and you will, we will enable you to still have more children. Um, so that was the sort of state-sponsored position. So India's first officially registered state-sponsored IVF baby was born in Mumbai's Chem Hospital in 1986. And it was, you know, that was brought about, it's really interesting actually from a feminist perspective, the role that senior women actually played in the early development of IVF in India. So you had individuals like uh, Sadhana Desai, Varosa Parekh, Indira Hundaja, who played roles in producing India's first IVF babies. But each is the member, by the way, of a distinct caste community. So Desai is a Gujarati, Parekh is a Parsi, uh, Hinduja is a Sindhi, etc. And what they have is large patient constituencies who come to them because of those uh, caste profiles. So, for instance, Desai attracts clients from the wealthy Gujarati jewellery trade, for instance, and diamond trading community, uh, not only, by the way, in India, but also in Belgium. So, you know, uh, uh, overseas Indians who come back for these services. Okay, so, but it's interesting what happened here. So many of those women first established IVF, and first established IVF clinics, big IVF clinics in India, but then, really interestingly, they become quite lucrative practices and what they tried to do was identify young and upcoming male gynaecologists who were of a similar caste who would inherit their mantle, if not even the practice itself. So sometimes they even inherited the practice. And it's really interesting to think about why that was. So they didn't want to hand their practice on to young women, they handed them on to young men. Maybe that was a kind of validation of like, now I've really made it because some young man wants to take this thing on. And, you know, we can speculate about that. Um, so, however, demand for state-funded ART was increasing, of course, for the reasons that I've outlined, and people wanting to have their biolog own biological children, and also health concerns, things like the spread of genital tuberculosis, which leaves many women with structural, in what I call structural infertility, so they're incapable of reproducing their own children. So all that's driving forward the demand for biological, uh, biologically related uh, children. Now, what happened, of course, was that demand outstrips state provision. So then it becomes, it's handed over to the sort of private sector uh, and, but, and concentrated amongst, in, in many of the, the provision is concentrated in the hands of India's privately funded 
urban elites for the most part. They're the ones setting up the big clinical practices. But that's not to suggest that the underprivileged didn't have any foothold in this kind of ART infertility universe. The ART market proved to be very accommodating and inclusive of poor women, very poor women, who were beckoned into, accommodated and incentivised to take part. Um, one might argue, as I did the other day, sometimes as producers and not just as consumers of vital commodities such as uh, you know, uh, gametes and reproductive labour. But it wouldn't be long before both they and their husbands would also be targeted as new and a potentially lucrative market for IVF services themselves. So people quickly realised that they are uh, individuals who would be susceptible to ART and who could be sold ART pretty effectively. So we have, then have a situation where most of the ART clinics in India's big metropolitan cities, so I'm thinking here Mumbai, Delhi, etc., etc., were first established by this elite cohort of leading obstetricians and gynaecologists, mostly men. And they were drawn into this specialism for a number of reasons, uh, which I think it's important to think about. So, of course, there's the potential to create lucrative private practices, but there are also some other factors that might surprise you. So, here is a quote, for instance. This is from a cl an ART clinician in India. So, from the doctor's perspective, you don't do night on-calls, 5,000 UK pounds to do an IVF cycle. By doing a regular delivery, he means an obstetric delivery, you don't earn that much, right? So if you're an obstetrician, you don't earn that much doing an obstetric delivery, but you can do it, earn 5,000 pounds doing one cycle of IVF for someone. Nobody will die of IVF. Great point, okay? Or very rarely. Only rarely you might have hyperstimulation kinds of things, but nobody will die. There's a chance of failure, but people will accept failure. So if you don't succeed, it's not a big deal. Go ahead, gain, profit. From the physician's perspective, it's a good life, good money, good status, and if somebody is conceived, he will worship you all his life. It's very re rewarding, a less input, high output kind of business. So many such clinicians were supported in their ambitions to create these clinics by what are termed turnkey providers. And these are companies like Trivector and Shivani Scientific. And what they do is they act as franchising agents. So interested gynaecologists come to them and they say, I want to start up an IVF clinic and Shivani or Trivector will say, we'll do it all for you. Okay, we will set everything up for you in order to enable you to do that. So they set them up with space, contracts, equipment, you know, the whole nine yards, as you guys would say, okay? But more, perhaps more significantly, apart from all that infrastructural stuff, they also kind of service, feed the hopes and dreams of those clinicians. But not without the return of a pretty significant commission. So here's another quote. They charge outrageous amounts of money to help set up. They make the cost of IVF impossibly high, but you know, they're feeding your dream. Suppose you, that he's talking about himself here, the clinicians are sleeping one night, you get up in the morning, you meet this person and he says, I can make you run a clinic. I don't see why you can't successfully run an IVF unit. It's a big money rolling machine and then this person will, have, will give this doctor a sleepless night and a lot of dreams. 
Next day he explains he will supply and do everything. I'll buy machines for you, I'll take commission, I'll buy your drugs, get you an embryologist, etc. This is an interesting point. There's a lot of travelling embryologists. So the embryologist is the single most important person and they fly in and out of all these little clinics now. They fly in on a Tuesday, they do the egg pickup, they, they do the process of, of creating the embryo or implanting the embryo and then zip, off they go to the next city. Really interesting. Okay, so he explains all that. Uh, so even if you make your, so they do it all, everything is done. So even if you make your accountant sit and do the job, he can do it. With one month of training, he can do it. So some big players per cycle, they'll charge 50,000 rupees, but nearly one third goes to the turnkey provider for setting you up and doing all that. So someone is charging for doing nothing because all the equipment, disposables, media, and so on are purchased by this doctor. So it's for nothing, really, just for making things happen, that they're charging that commission on every cycle that they do. But that sort of level of facilitation has created this progressive expansion of ART services, not only into semi-urban, but also all the way into very small towns and countries and even really dusty kind of tiny villages in India. So the economic geographies of this expansion are complex and multiple, but here's a few um, key points. Okay, so up the top there, ART clinics were initially concentrated in the large metro cities, including Calcutta, Mumbai, Chennai, Delhi, Bangalore, etc. But then from 2010 to 14, we saw an exception, exponential expansion into these tier two and three cities. And the way they do it is one centre in each of those towns then reaches out to patients in the surrounding four or five districts. So they go to some local, local gynaecologist and they sit there for one day and then they get patients to come in to them and then they pick out the right patients to refer back to the clinics. So they're approaching the whole thing very aggressively, trying to reach the geographies that they can manage in these smaller towns and, and nearby. And sometimes specific centres like places like Kerala have boomed for curiously idiosyncratic reasons. So there's a lot of um, labourers in that locality, in Calcutta, who are the kind of people who go to the Middle East and build things like Qatar's amazing new football stadium, okay? They're away for very long periods of time from their families. And in fact, you can't, it's a little known fact, but it's very hard to reproduce if you don't have any sex. So they come back not having had sexual relations with their partners for months and months and months and months, and they go and use IVF because they try, they're trying to speed up the kind of biological clock of reproduction by shortcutting it through a sort of technological fix because who's got time to have sex once a month? That's a bit slow, okay? So that's what they're doing. So we saw this overall expansion. From 2010, we think there are about 120 clinics. By 2014, there are 550 clinics. There's now tens of thousands of IVF clinics right across India. Okay, so now, this is the kind of social and spatial dynamics of ART provision in India. And this unregulated, rapidly expanding market has created some extremely adverse implications for patient care. So I would suggest that this expanded market in ART services, as it's expanded, has unfortunately become rather fragmented and often corrupt, exploiting a new subaltern consumer base 
by holding this exceptionally vulnerable population in continuous cycles of what we call indentured therapy. So you've got people who've got this tremendous desire to conceive a genetically related child. Um, some extremely impoverished cu uh, couples are in rural localities and they are often subjected to the most degrading and humiliating forms of stigmatisation if they can't reproduce. So they are desperate and the ART service providers have met that need through their expansion and many so-called ART clinics dot the landscape. They purport to offer technologically advanced assisted interventions and many consumers believe that they have the cure. Some of them spoke specifically to me about the science of ART. These are people who are very poorly educated, but they understood the power of the science word. It was like, it is going to fix our problem. And their sterility. So the market, as it expanded, didn't just replicate itself as it kind of colonised those rural areas. It became rather a poor shadow of itself. So these, this population is less affluent, less informed, less aware. They're the subaltern infertile class of India's rural districts. And they've been encouraged to participate in that market despite the fact that they have very poor knowledge of it. So you know, what we've seen there is, is a sort of situation in which you've now got an economy of very high cost, very low quality treatment, coupled with exceptionally poor information dissemination and non-existent or weakly formulated regulation, and that's unfolded and become normative in that space, so it's a pretty toxic mix. So I spoke to one of the owner and director of one of India's leading turnkey providers that I talked about before, and he reflected on the circumstances that have created, that he's been part of, by the way, but he's reflecting on the implications of so he says, many B-towns and those further into the interior promise cheaper rates than what clinics in Mumbai and Delhi offer. But such cheaper rates are impossible to attain and also sustain in real life. See, of the total cost they incur, the maximum is for the med medicines they use and the price of the medicines are the same whether a clinic in Mumbai buys them or one in a B-town buys them. So the manufacturer of the drugs will not give any extra discounts to the rural areas is what he's saying. So what happens then? Well, the suburban clinics, he, he says suburban, but he means sub-urban, so he means rural there, really. The suburban clinics shall have to make up for the lower costs in some way, and they do that, and this is a key point, by luring the patient into more cycles than she needs. Okay? It's a vicious and tragic chain, actually. This, got, this geezer's telling me this, and I'm like, Okay, this is one of these methodological moments when you're doing your field work where you're like, I'm thinking to myself, keep your face on. That's what I describe it as. Keep your face on. Don't let your jaw drop. Don't go, what the actual F are you doing, mate? Don't, no, 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 none of that because I want him to tell me what is actually going on. So he says, uh, yeah, lure her into more cycles than she needs. It's a vicious and tragic chain, actually. The patient gets trapped once they enter these clinics, and these women are usually not well-informed, who do not know how to browse proper literature on the internet and so on, that they would usually do what their in-laws or husbands say. For the family who has taken the bold step of confronting their infertility and come to the clinic, there is not another easy second option. The nearest clinic is probably in the 
in the city several kilometres or more away and those patients are effectively trapped. Once they have begun the cycles, they feel probably some sort of moral compulsion to go on until either they get pregnant, they get pregnant, or the doctor gives up. And the latter, you understand, happens very late. So the doctor does not give up because they're busy selling them cycle after cycle after cycle. So a lot of those clinicians have only very basic obstetric training. So although all those clinics are theoretically branded as ART clinics, and I've got a couple of pictures which I didn't have on here, but some of these things are theoretically an ART clinic. Like these dusty, filthy joints on the corner of these towns are a sign hanging off like this. You know, they are really not very sophisticated. Um, and a lot of them who are branded as offering IVF are essentially IUI or ovulation. So, you know, all they're doing is introducing sperm into the womb. They're not really doing anything more sophisticated than that. And the way they try and improve the, the fertility success rate is they often give these women old school um, gonadotrophins, what are called urinary gonadotrophins. So, so these are things like Clomid. And what they do is they hype up your production of eggs. Now that's all fine and well if, um, if your problem is that you don't produce any eggs. But most of the time, actually, the reason why women are not conceiving is not because they're not producing enough eggs. Sometimes that is the case, but often not. Often it's because there's some structural impediment to the sperm meeting the eggs. So, for example, they've had genital tuberculosis. That's created a huge amount of scar tissue in their fallopian tubes. Fallopian tubes are blocked. Egg does not meet sperm. No conception happens. Does not matter how many, how, how many eggs you're going to produce. They are not going to get through the brick wall of that of that physical impediment, so they are not going to conceive. Okay, so nevertheless, what that means is that in these lower order clinics, most of the money that they make comes from offering these sort of so-called cycles of IVF, not really cycles of IVF, they're just IUI. But actually, the biggest amount of money comes from the obstetric delivery at the end. It's delivering the baby. So what they want to do is they want to keep these women with them all the way. They do not want to hand them off to a more sophisticated clinic because then they'll wind up having the baby somewhere else. So they're trying to keep them with them. Okay, so, you know, one, uh, okay, so this is what happens then. No, this is what happens. No, no. oh yeah, I have to read this one to you. Okay, so this is... One of their multinational pharmaceutical managers explained it this way to me. What's happening? One of the challenges in India is that all IUI doctors, technically, as per the guidelines, should not do more than three IUIs, and then you should refer patients to IVF. Okay, so if the simple thing doesn't work, you have to move that patient on to do IVF properly. But what happens is that most of these IUI practitioners try to keep the patients along with themselves and keep delaying the process of sending the patients to IVF. And by the time they reach an IVF centre with all their capabilities, they have either lost their ovarian reserve or they miss out in terms of age and the endometrium and the quality of the eggs are really much poorer. All these complications arise because these guys, the IUI providers, do not want to lose the financial benefit which they would get if the pregnancy is being delivered, I say put it, getting delivered, at the same hospital where they do it. They have a fear that if I give the patient to some IVF doctor, 
my patient will not come back to me for obstetrics practice, which in India is around 10 to 15,000 rupees depending on the town. Okay? Now, the implications of that for those subaltern women who are not only infertile but ill-informed and subservient to their husbands and their in-laws are really profoundly adverse, I put it to you. So they go through cycle after cycle of fruitless hyperstimulation, her ovarian reserve plummets, the cost of treatment increases, miring herself and her partner and their family in ever greater indebtedness. So one IVF clinic, clinician, this is a woman who directs uh, a bigger IVF facility in Jaipur, shared the acute distress that she experiences when treating those women who've been subjected to this poor care and who are now technically and effectively more infertile now than they were to begin with. So here's her quote. She came to me from this village in Maharashtra. She had not conceived after eight years of marriage and visited a local ART clinic four years ago. The couple had sold their cattle, remortgaged their, farm, mortgaged their farmland for affording 10 rounds of stimulation over three years. Can you believe it? When they ran out of money, they took a break. The doctor kept on assuring them it would surely happen the next time until they saw through him and arrived here. I did some tests and realised the woman had blocked fallopian tubes. It was a birth defect. I was so shocked when I understood that the basic tests had not been done to her. Had she gone to a proper doctor at the start, they would not have spent such huge amounts of money at least. So for her, that, you know, the chance of conceiving by the time she reached the IVF clinic were virtually nil because she had squandered her ovarian, she had, her ovarian reserve had been squandered by people overstimulating her when her problem was not a lack of eggs, it was a lack of, it was a structural problem. So some leading IVF clinicians in Mumbai have drawn our attention to the size of the potential market for IRT services in India. With an estimated national population of over 1.1 billion, some 350 million couples lie in the reproductive age group. So if only 2% of them are infertile, the prospective market is still strikingly large, about 7 million couples per year. So that's the size potentially of that. Okay, so now I move on to this part of the talk. So that just summarises what I said a moment ago. And I've called this ART Dreaming um, up 3 Reproductive Empires, okay? So you get this very powerful cohort of Mumbai and Delhi-based IVF specialists. They've made a lot of money out of the provision of this stuff in India, and then they begin to think about spinning out their operations into these smaller centres and towns. But their motivations are complex, and really interestingly, actually, I think, highly gendered, and also inflected with, oddly, with kind of colonialist or expansionist sort of desires. So here's a, here's a nice quote. This is a clinician talking about what he calls the Mumbai Mafia. So these are the top-level IVF specialists who own all these practices and are busy spinning them out everywhere. You know these guys, the leading ART entrepreneurs, they like to think, we're running the show, we have control, we have power. One says, I'm running, and what he means here is he's saying, I'm running for four years. And somebody else will say, I'm running for nine years. Well, I'm running for 23 years and right throughout the country. And surprisingly, I don't know how I forgot to mention this, they're all males who are doing this. None of them are females. So in reproduction, in the reproductive world, he means, 
They have status, you know, because people are coming, my apostles are coming, I have this lady and I have that lady, and they're the, the, they are the female reproductive specialists that they recruit to run all those satellite clinics for them. And that gives them a thrill because they start with a small clinic and they make that into a big hospital and now they're running 50 hospitals. So it gives them like an empire and that gives them like an imperial. It's more of a colonial kind of pleasure as they try to colonise the country. And there are many of them. If you see the map of India, they're based in Bombay, they run in Kashmir, they run in Punjab, they run in Assam and now they're running in Africa too. And these people you need to talk to, you can't not talk to them because these are the mafia, the godfathers who run this business in India. Now, it's really interesting that much of this, what I would call colonising ethos, was actually learnt at the knee of those prominent European IVF consortiums that first entered the Indian market in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So at this time, Indian specialists watched as an influx of leading fertility providers from Europe and the UK entered the market in India. So they included things like um, Bourne Hall. So Bourne Hall is a private hospital just outside of Cambridge that's specialists in, repro specialists in reproduction. And they went, oh, we know, we'll expand internationally. So Bourne Hall arrives in, in India and starts offering IVF services. This is in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So the Indians are like, I don't know who these guys are arriving with all their stuff, but you know they seem to be penetrating our market and offering these services. So they understand that. And those big UK um, providers began to develop their um, presence in India and also began to operate with other sort of like uh, big global ART and infertility specialist companies like Nova IVF, which is... Uh, based in Spain, which is huge, you know, so they got into bed with all that kind of European apparatus to move into the Indian market and start selling IVF in the Indian market, okay? So the kind of dynamics of that, what we might think of as wider imperial exploitation, was very evident to those Indian IVF specialists who were drawn into the employ of those clinics in India. Uh, so, you know, they began to think, about, okay, hang on, what's happening here? They began to understand that this was a kind of colonial expansion of, of, of infertility services into India. And they were thinking, well, hang on, can't we run our own services? Why are we having to work for these you know, British companies? And clinicians began to complain that the British were profiteering from the sale of equipment, media. Media means the stuff that you, the, the sort of culture tissue culture that you suspend the eggs and sperm in to keep it alive, um, you know, the supplies. But they noted that Indian providers were prepared to offer for half the cost. So they go, why are we paying all these British firms? Why are we having to pay them so much money? They're kind of ripping us off here. We could provide this in India for much less money. So then they began to think about, and equally, as those British companies and German companies began to expand into countries like Africa in ART, the Africans also began to go, well, this is really expensive. I think we're being, you know, kind of ripped off here. So they, the Indians began to play directly on the Africans' concerns about the imperialist behaviour of these British and German IVF suppliers.
And they were saying, oh, we've been subject to a similar kind of process of exploitation. So what the Indians did very cunningly was set about offering African people cut-rate supplies. So they said, we can do this for you and we can do it for you a lot cheaper than those British and German firms can do. If they agreed to become satellites of emerging Indian IVF chains such as Fortis and Rotunda. So that was their business expansion model. They're like, listen, don't get in the bed with those uh, English and you know, German providers. We will look after you. We'll provide you IVF services. We'll provide it much more cheaply, but you have to become a satellite of us. So as the director, in fact, of the, the Rotunda um, clinic, explained to me, and this is a quote, the Western companies were really exploiting these Africans. They, the UK and German corporations, had gone out from Africa completely now because nobody trusts them. I was very surprised as I go to a clinic in Ghana to practice IVF, this is an Indian guy speaking, and I was very surprised that if they want to buy a British product, they don't buy it from the British company directly, they go to an Indian agent there. So there's a big deficit of trust in Africa now towards these colonial English and German companies. They, the Africans, just get the feeling that they have been exploited all along. So whether or not Indian providers' intentions are any more admirable than those of their colonial masters is, of course, open to debate. So the African market for assisted reproduction is potentially huge and also driven by similar kinds of um, strong desires for biologically linked children and so on that I have described before. So market forecast reports for 2018 to 23 predict that the African and Middle East IVF markets will be worth US $4.46 billion by 2023 and that they're going to grow at a rate of 16% every year from 2018 to 2023. Now the excitement that that idea invoked amongst the Indian providers is really palpable. So one said to me, oh no, back here, I have to read to the market is huge, he said. I had a trainee from Africa who stayed with us for six months. He went back there and he took six months to open up a small clinic. These are Africans being trained by Indians. Okay, so this is a global south-to-south -south provision, cutting out the colonising UK and German provision, okay? He went, first of all, just to test the waters, but he is now doing 200 cycles a month, and it's huge, the market there. I went to help him with this first batch of embryo transfers, and this, was, and this place, he means in Africa, this clinic, was like, well, it really looked like 20 years back, even compared to India, but still, they're paying the same as here, as they would be in India. I've also now got a practicing license in the UAE, United Arab Emirates as well, where childlessness is really bad. That's why there is a lot of expansion there. So you can see how this is playing out. Okay, so how are we then to conceptualize the emergence of what I describe as these new global fertility chains? Let's think about it like that, extractive chains, production chains. Okay, so capitalist production of reproductive markets clearly hasn't disappeared, but it's now being realized in new sites of accumulation. So it could be argued following Marini that dependent economies like India 
are compensating for prior imperialist processes of exploitation of their economies, like, you know, for example, by visiting them on their near and even more disadvantaged neighbours, um, their, their own iteration, if you like, of colonial exploitation. And certainly that behaviour would mirror that of many BRICS firms in other types of production, whether that's steel or anything else, um, who, who, some people have argued, are amongst the most super exploitative of the corporations engaged in accumulation in Africa. So that story of like, you know, unfortunately, it's not a particularly nice story. There's a lot of South-South exploitation going on there, which should unsettle our conceptions that all of exploitation, if it's happening, is global South to global, global North to global South, because often it's South-South exploitation that you're seeing here. Okay, so, um, how can we, can we characterise that kind of reproductive empire building simply as a form of learned or kind of sub-imperialism? Well, the geographer Patrick Bond argues that such developments certainly complicate our existing and rather simplistic narratives that seek the, to divide the world into oppressed and oppressor nations. It would seem to reflect more closely Vivek Chiba's argument that such behaviour actually constitutes an aspirational alignment of the BRICS elite with their imperial mentors, such that we're now seeing the emergence of a new phenomenon, and that is the convergence of ruling classes in the global south and the global north into a common committee of global capitalist interests. So it's more like the, the, capitalist, the elite capitalist class in the global north and south get along quite well, and south-south get along quite well, um, you know, shutting out others. However, the reality it may in fact be even more complex than that. So Indian IVF corporations are not simply acting as regional agents of Western imperialism or what David Harvey calls deputy sheriffs, even though they have actively sought to establish these powerful new domains of influence in these new territories. But the local and national elites who are driving the expansion of this market are not just passive recipients in this process, but active contributors, as we have seen, to the construction of the conditions that are necessary to drive the development of those markets forward. So they're not just passively accepting that, they're actually creating the conditions in which expansion is possible. So, we need to think about what those conditions are. And one of the core conditions for expanding that market in the way that it has expanded, in my view, is that it's been really important for the market in order to expand for there to be light touch or non-existent regulation. That works to advance the interests of both Indian and African parties. So in that respect, we could say that they have tried to develop a sort of light-touch regulatory framework and expand into that. So that has involved what we would call a political compromise. So that's that. And the political compromise, I would say, is to achieve maximum economic gain at the lowest political cost. And you see that in the regulatory framework that sets out the context and parameters of this business expansion. So what we've seen in India 
in relationship to the ART and surrogacy regulations, and also, by the way, in China in relation to its gene editing policies, this is the compromise. The state announces very formally ambitious plans to curb market failures, so things like delivery of poor quality services, overcharging, absence of licensing, etc., whilst at the same time non-implementing those very same regulations. And that creates the conditions for unregulated market growth. So what they do is they say, oh yeah, we're going to introduce these very robust regulations to prevent market failures, we won't allow unlicensed clinics, we won't allow, you know, exploiting people in that kind of way, you know, we'll introduce all sorts of formal policies to prevent that. But then those regulations just sit there in a state of kind of stasis for year after year after year. So technically they're there, but in practicality they're doing almost nothing. And that creates circumstances in which the market can flourish pretty much under its own terms and conditions. And they, you know, you can kind of do pretty much what you want to do. So, you know, once you've stabilised that through this kind of parsing work as a politically legitimate thing to do, the medical innovation, in this case assisted reproduction, can be spun off as a marketable commodity in a variety of local and international or emerging markets contexts. So without adequate regulation, the sites into which they're exported risk becoming at the hands of these rather expeditious entrepreneurs potentially even more super-exploitative of their local populations than what we've seen there before. So um, Aditya Bhagwaj suggests that we really have to pay attention to what he calls the role of local biologies in fashioning these regulatory protocols that ultimately prove less concerned with proving efficacy and safety and more focused on producing a regulatory choreography that can act as a shield against a litigious culture where, in the absence of promised results or adverse outcomes, disquiet could rapidly pre precipitate into financially damaging class actions. So what he means there is that rather than pr providing people with efficacy and safety, the regulatory framework actually is designed to prevent people making litigious claims against you so it's, it's there so that there isn't really, you haven't transgressed anything because there's nothing to transgress. So it's not against the law to do X, Y, Z, or the law isn't, isn't fully, you know, um, implemented. So nobody cares if you've done X, Y, and Z. And so what that means is that, and if there were, if, if regulation was there much more firmly and people were able to take class actions, then that would adversely affect the operation of the market and close things down. So we don't want that to happen. So we kind of want it to be there, but we don't really want it to be doing anything um, in terms of actual, you know, legal, giving legal rights to people who have been uh, adversely affected by the delivery of these very um, poor quality services. So. Just to conclude, I'd say that kind of entrepreneurial spread of what I think of as second-rate reproductive medical services throughout India and into what we might think of as subprime Africa is, I hope I've demonstrated here, driven by a sort of complex interlinked suite of cultural and economic dynamics, the 
neoliberalism of healthcare service provision in India, so moving away from state provision of IVF, putting it all in the hands of private providers, privatisation, corporatisation of care, the private, you know, as, as we saw, all those companies going, yeah, I'm going to get some turnkey provider in and start shunting this stuff out as a really sort of actively growing business model. Um, cultural preferences for biologically related children, which we saw from those cases in, in places like Jaipur, Maharashtra, people selling off their farms, their cattle, their absolutely anything to have a biologically related child and what the implications of that are. But also what I call gendered competitiveness. So all the Mumbai mafia jostling and vying with themselves to have the biggest empire and the biggest number of clinics and the most expansion into Africa or the UAE and all that posturing that goes along with that has been a really important factor as well. And of course there are significant resonances here also by the way with the pharmaceutical landscape so you see similar things happening there in which Indian companies are now providing high quality generic drugs but also have far lower standards in their production. So I hope that this evidence that I've marshalled so far suggests that new global fertility chains are substantively embedding new potentially amoral economies of reproduction that may intensify rather than remediate existing inequalities in access to reproductive care by making such technologies seemingly more available or more accessible, yet less assuredly beneficial either biologically or economically to their intended recipients. Okay, that's it. Great questions. I mean, <clears throat> yes, you can get multiple births, and the implications of that. I mean, it's it's. It, however, of course, that only happens if your problem is sure. that you know if you're able to conceive mm -hmm. in that way. If 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 sort of you know you don't have some sort of structural impediment to the reproduction, um, and yes, the implications are really quite serious. And for couples who are poor, of course. You know, you don't want to say this, but it depends a lot on the gender of the child. 
So in India, if they have two boys, they're mostly, let's say they have twin boys, they're mostly ecstatic about that um, because one, their infertility problem has been resolved <coughs> and two, they have two young men who might, you know, support them in their, in their older age. However, if it's two young women, that's a bit of an unmitigated disaster because then you actually have two lots of dowry and so on. Um, now, the question of to what extent selective abortion is going on, because, of course, remember, if you're doing IV, IUI, even though, of course, you know, um, scanning pregnancies is, is illegal in India, um, and certainly sex selective abortion is illegal in India, um, but you're in a clinic setting where they're going to know fairly early on what the gender of this you know, child is, if you've managed to conceive. Now, some families might go, great, I really want to have children and I don't, I'm not worried if they're girls. But if it follows the general pattern that's still occurring right across India now, you see you know, a lot of sex-selective abortion still going on. And it's fully reflected in the demographics of certain states in India. And it is a huge problem in India now. I was just in, in, um, in Delhi two, two or three weeks ago and heard some presentations from people on the fact that you have, you know, quite a significant number of states now in India where there are virtually no girls. And, you know, the young men have no one to marry. And that is a real problem now. So they are now having to either import women from other parts of the country or go to other parts of the country if they want to get married. So that is a, that is a real problem. Um, and in terms of, sorry, just remind me a second. Uh, is, that sort of, is the profession sort of pretending oh, yeah, to that Yes, not? yes, yes. I mean, the ICMR are, are trying to do their best around the um, database and the sort of, you know, what trying to chart. But I don't think they really are doing very much about it. Okay, so there's two parts. One is just charting how many clinics are there. And the second thing is, what are those clinics doing and what sort of services are they providing and should we try to be trying to do any kind of accreditation or credentialisation of those clinics, etc. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's really important as well. And actually, one of the things I'm doing with a couple of my colleagues who were on that board at the front is we got a small grant to try and we were actually we were kind of drunk in a bar in Mumbai once and we went, you know, this is a huge problem. How do we show that this databasing of the clinics is a bit of a, you know, well I say a joke if I wasn't being recorded, but you know, um, is is really you know poorly done, poorly formed, that there are many, many more clinics than anyone imagines that there are. And I started to think, you know, we could potentially do that methodologically via crowdsourcing. Yeah. So if you take a city, let's take this city, that's a good example. So if you take a city like Kingston, what we could potentially do is create an app so that when you're going around on your motorbike, every time you see an ART clinic, you geolocate it on your phone and then you stop and do a little write-up of what that clinic says it's offering in the kind of, you know, note section. And then if you had, let's say, six students who would do that for you in Kingston and you would give them all a lump of the city, 
Then all they have to do, so each person, it's not too much work, they're going out for a few afternoons and they have to go up and down the streets on their motorbike and they have to map where all these things are and what they're doing, which would give us a snapshot of what one city looks like. And we're actually in the process of doing that now across three cities in India, using students, just like the ones that you would find at this university, and an app which we have developed to map where these, where these sort of clinics are. And so we're hoping to show, oh, you know, Kingston seems to have 50 IVF clinics or whatever, whereas technically, according to the ICMR database, there's two. And so what we're going to try and do is extrapolate that and go, well, if they've got 50 when we think we've got two, then potentially across India there are X, Y, Z, you know, more than we have anticipated, which we hope might precipitate some attention on just the scale of the industry and also saying, oh, this one says they do IVF and yada yada. Does this look like anywhere you'd have IVF done? You know, it's got one of those um, curtains in the front of it that you have in the butcher shop to keep the flies out, you know, like strips of, you know, coloured plastic or something. You're thinking, hmm, is this, does this look likely to be an IVF destination? Probably not. So also we, we're trying to get the students to do a little bit of research around for example the qualifications of the people what do they say their qualifications are so many of them say you know trained in the uk etc etc well for a start a lot of them are not never left the country secondly some of them did go to the uk but they were there for two months so you know that's a kind of a i don't know sort of a training but not probably what you'd think of as a proper training. Um, so trying to unpack some of that. And some of the students actually have said to me, it would be much better if I went into the clinic and presented as a potential patient and then had a discussion with them about what they could do for me and blah, blah, blah. I'm nervous, you know. I'm like, I'm, they're, they're, they're willing, I'm nervous, you know, because I'm thinking, you get actually because of the way you get kind of mired in these things. So the minute you walk in the front door, they want, to, they want your mobile number, they want to know who you are, and then they're ringing you up every, you know, oh, you seem to have not come back to this clinic, and we could offer you this and that, and, you know, it can be very sticky and actually very difficult to get rid of them after that. So, um, and you don't know as well whether they might say right then and there when the minute you come in, oh, we need to do some blood tests or we need to do some thing or something or another or, you know, whatever, and you're sort of backpedalling going, look, I don't want to do all that right now. So it's quite... However, it would probably yield some very good information. So, you know, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It's one of those methodological sort of... Undercover. You know, conundrums that you sort of have to resolve when you're in the field. But so that's what we're trying to do with that piece of work at the moment. Okay. Yeah. And you spoke a lot throughout about the desire for your own biological yeah. child, so mm -hmm. the desire for your own biology. Is there at all any sort of adoption set up in India? Does that Oh, yeah, it's huge, huge. Um, so there are people that are adopting kids, but they're of course. Kids are much bigger. Yeah, of course. And in fact, you know, the surrogacy regulation bill, which bans surrogacy, well, it's, it's complex and it's going through various iterations right now. So initially, the surrogacy 
regulation bill, which was introduced in 2016, sectioned out surrogacy regulation from a broader assisted reproductive technology bill, which it had previously sat within, so created a separate bill. And all of a sudden it was announced that the surrogacy regulation bill would ban any form of commercial surrogacy in India, which everyone was very surprised by, and would only allow altruistic surrogacy to be performed, so no exchange of money, no commercial provision, etc. But it also made part of, made part of the regulation the fact that, us, that altruistic surrogacy had to be performed by someone who was a quote-unquote close relative of the intended couple. That was the only person who could do it. So they still were determined as yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly, and, and that's sort of trying to actually maintain some kind of biological connection as well in the gestating, gestation process. But myself and many other commentators in this field were rather horrified by that because we felt that tremendous pressure would come on those sisters, sister-in-laws or whatever to be the carrier of this, gest you know, gestational carrier of this child for you know, the cousin or the brother or the whatever, people who absolutely had no desire to birth a child on behalf of someone else. Mm. And that we felt that that was much more exploitative than actually paying someone who was, who was saying, I've thought about that for a long time and I feel fine about it and I'm willing to do it. Uh, so, you know, the whole situation with the, the surrogacy regulation bill is that technically it was banned, but now, we, they asked for some feedback, they asked for some insight. We all said, well, we think that's an awful idea and I think they were a bit stunned by that. So then they asked for some feedback, we gave it to them. And now it's looking like the altruistic, the, the requirement for close relative is going to be dropped, which I think is a, a good thing. Um, so we'll wait and see what happens. But your, the first part of your question was? Well, just because the, the Oh, adoption, adoption. Yeah. So the the, the, the head of the head of the um, of the Department of Health in in India, who is a woman called Sumya Sumanathan, who has now gone to the World Health Organization, where she's assistant director. She told me that that part of the reason, explicitly, that the reason why they had introduced a surrogacy regulation ban was to try and prevent, in a way, she didn't use exactly these words, but kind of the valorisation of the biological child. So she was saying, with which I fully concur, India is awash with children who don't have any parents, and they should all be being adopted, and people should not be using assisted reproduction or surrogacy services to just have biologically related children, and we should effectively deter them from being able to do that by banning these kinds of services, okay? And I said to her, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm with you in theory, but do you, and she was saying, we're going to make adoption simpler, we're going to make it easier, it has been, ironically, you'll love this bit, I love this bit. Part of the reason why adoption is so complex in India is because when a child is put into an, an orphanage, before that child can be adopted out, they go back to the biological parents over and over again to make sure they're okay with their child being adopted. Because 
ironically, of the same valorization of biological child. So they're like, this is your actual child. Are you sure you want this child to be adopted? Are you double sure? Are you triple sure? And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, when you're being asked over and over again and you're being made to feel like, oh, God, I'm actually, you know, really giving up my, my biological child. They kind of go, oh, oh, you know, I don't know, and maybe, and mm, I'm just really poor at the moment. They're like, it's okay. We'll leave your child in the orphanage, and you might earn a bit more money, and you can come back. We'll ask you next year, you know? So these children stay there for a very long period of time before finally it's like, oh, I think we really don't want this child now to be adopted. So, and, you know, there is a lot of complex, you know, um, what would you call it, vetting around who can adopt children and some, which, all of which is fine. But it does make it a very long and drawn out process. So, you know, that, that's so. It's, you can adopt, but it it's, can be very long and drawn out. And so lots of people, and anyway, it doesn't really resolve that fundamental structural problem, which is that the child isn't biologically related to you. And for a lot of people, that's just the deal breaker. So that, that's what they want, and nothing will change the one that way. Yeah, the red type, yeah. The second is also, India, as you mentioned at the very outset, is a caste-driven society. Mm -hmm. And it's very particular about religion, too. So many many people um, want to ensure that the caste lineage is the same. Yeah. But more importantly, it is because of the red tape. There are more parents on the waiting list mm. in India than um, than the children available, mm. and Indian state has created barriers. Mm. Um, I've done work on that. And why do you think? Why do you think they've done that? What What are the barriers? Um, uh, because of pressure from child rights activists too, rightly so. Mm. Because of the unregulated market, mm. so they reacted very much like the surrogacy in mm. a knee-jerk reaction yeah, yeah. Um, by creating more barriers. Mm. Um, and it also emerged like you may have like a couple of failures of international or overseas adoption. Yeah, yeah. So they blocked that too, right? Yeah, yeah. Something what happened with Russia and the US. Yes, yeah. The yeah. case of one child being sent back sets the whole country yeah, down. Yeah, so some right? surrogacy, some so, surrogacy. Um, there are very few, uh, the, the majority of children who are in orphanages have been abandoned mm. or have been given up by, by parents. I know of, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, mothers who are female-headed households who mm. grew up the children, right? Or women who are in mental institutions. Mm. You need the permission of the parent, right? Mm -hmm. In that mm. case, the woman is not eligible. Mm. to have that uh, approval. Mm. She's not, uh, I would say, she cannot really give her approval. So mm. um, there are very few instances where people go back. Mm. Um, and and I, the major reason for the backlog is because people 
you want to ensure that the child is in the caste because later on it creates more barriers for marriage because there is caste endogamy as far as marriage is concerned in sociological terms. So you want to marry within the same caste pool. You do not want someone who's of caste unknown. Um, <coughs> So also for religion too, but I don't want to take more space. No, no, um, it's f absolutely fantastic to hear all that detail, which is really important. And I mean, you know, it, is it the case that more children of lower caste, because of the socioeconomic, you know, relationship there, are more are more likely to be abandoned, and therefore people of higher caste are less likely to be inclined to adopt them. Right. Yes, there is, but also I want to bring in a fact of colorism too. Mm. Now that you're asking me to amplify, yeah. um, <laughs> um, uh, girls who are more pale-skinned yes, get yeah. adopted far more easily yeah. than um, yeah. uh, children who are darker-skinned. Boys, yeah. however informed they might be or have disabilities, sorry for using such a term, mm. are still the priority mm. than the girl child. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so. Those yeah. are other uh, factors that yeah. create such a pool of um, children who are not adopted. Yeah. Um, my, I mean, my work is also on cross-region marriages that's coming up with female right, right, sides, so yeah. that's really fascinating. I just had a couple of questions for you. Uh, because I work with um, communities, I'm curious, how do you, how do you manage to get these absolutely fantastic and revealing interviews? Like, did you really tell these doctors this is what you're doing? <laughs> I mean, honestly, this, this was my first reaction because I've done a film on IVF, so I know what yeah. a problem it is. Yeah. So that is one question. And the second is you call it subaltern ART. Mm -hmm. I'm coming from a post-colonial framework mm -hmm. um, to frame these empires of capital accumulation on the bodies of females. So I'm curious, how are you juxtapositioning subaltern with this? Mm -hmm. Well, good question. Let me start with, well, actually, maybe I'll start with your last question first. So I guess what I'm trying to say is exactly what you ended by saying, which is that these sort of new reproductive capitalist, new reproductive empires are based on the oppression of a sort of subaltern class of women who are deeply disempowered, you know, struggling with very few resources. It, it really, it makes me extremely cross, you know. Um, and that I'm not suggesting that they are, but I'm sort of suggesting that that's how they are viewed and that's how they are rather, I believe, rather callously exploited in those, in those terms. So that's my kind of take on that, I suppose. In terms of how I got the interviews, I was... I was very, um, how did I get the interviews initially? I'm thinking about how I first met my, my core sort of contact. I knew a couple of people who worked in ART in India and I thought I would first of all approach some people who were Indian ART reproductive specialists in London because I felt that they would potentially give me connections to you know, I sense that there was a high level kind of, you know, I, I mean, my, my, my um, interlocutor there describes them as the kind of Mumbai mafia and that's who I'm sort of referring to, that there was a kind of high level elite group of specialists. And I thought, 
the London folks could potentially plug me into that. And I was right in, in thinking that because one of the first people I approached was a woman who was practicing ART, she was Indian, practicing ART at Homerton Hospital in London. But it turned out that her husband was an extraordinary person who actually is a child paediatric intensive care specialist, right, in London. But they're, they're transnational. So half of their lives in Jaipur and half of their lives in London. But what was really interesting about him was that they had considered setting up their own IVF clinic in Jaipur. And in fact, she is this clinician. She is this one. She is this clinician. And so she did set up her own ART clinic, IVF clinic, in Jaipur, but in a hospital. And she was incredibly kind of principled and was offering IVF to a lot of people who really needed it and who couldn't really afford it. And she was substantially cutting her own rates to provide this for them. And he is also an extremely principled, very nice guy. But because they've had this experience of setting up their own clinic, which, by the way, they've since closed and moved back to London because she just found it too, I think, too emotionally demanding as well because of the number of people that she saw that were in a really pretty awful way and shouldn't have been, you know, as, as badly off as they were. Um, because they had had the experience of setting up their clinic, he knew all about these turnkey providers and the Mumbai mafia and all that. And so we got on incredibly well. He gave me some fantastic interviews about the, the stuff about how you think about setting up, you know, this stuff. And then through a sort of long process of, you know, what would you describe it as? Sort of encouraging these people to talk to me, you know, I managed to get them to give me interviews in Delhi, in Mumbai or wherever. And just, there's something, by the way, if there's younger people here who are like postdocs, something wonderful in all my career about saying that you're an economic geographer. It is, sounds like the most boring thing in the entire world. When you say to people, I'm an economic geographer, and they, they think it's so dumb that they almost, you can make them tell you anything because they just don't think you're, it's a thing, you know, sort of in the world. So I had those interviews with them and I asked them, you know, and they told me. And, the, and also, like, I also did a lot of interviews with, it sounds really boring as well, but like pharmaceutical executives and sales people in, in, in Delhi. And I'm like, so how does your market work? You know, if you frame it all in terms of markets, right? And they're going, oh, well, there's really two different markets. There's the market in Mumbai and then there's the market in the rural areas. And they haven't got any money, so we give them these really old-school gonadotropin drugs. And the really fantastic ones, they're more expensive. They're just, the, you know, the Mumbai market. And it just sort of comes out, you know? But they knew what they were using. You were using this part? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But they don't think of it in quite the same way. You know, I mean, they, they just, like I said, they just think I'm some boring economic geographer who's writing about, I don't know. 
actually they're really cheerful because they're like, oh my God, someone wants to talk to me about my marketing gonadotrophins, you know, which is not something that I imagine a lot of people want to talk to them about. So they're just sort of cheerfully telling you about how it all it, it, it works, if you see what I mean. Not, they're not really worried about what you're gonna do. They haven't got the big picture. They're just telling, like they don't have the story that I have constructed about what's going on from the overview of the whole thing. They're just one tiny microcosmic part. The same thing with Shivani and Tribeca. They're like, well, this is our business. You know, we put people into business and we set them up and we do this and that. And, you know, they just tell you. We are close to the time, right? Yeah. Um, we have another class. I know there's another class that comes in here. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.